The Great War is over, and the boys are back home. Wilson and his League of Nations has been scrapped, as the United States has just elected Warren G. Harding as President of the United States. And now we are returning to what Harding has called normalcy. Many businessmen and economists predicted that a depression would take place now that the war was over. It was felt that Europe would repatriate its gold. War industries would close down. Servicemen would be a glut on the labor market. And America would return to the recessionary climate of 1913. It is true that war industries did suffer, but pent-up consumers bought everything they could lay their hands on, and this took up the slack in the market. European needs for American capital goods were as great as its earlier demands for munitions had been. The soldiers that did come home did not find breadlines on their return either. They discovered that the economy was suffering from an acute labor shortage. Furthermore, Germany had been crushed and could not be expected to revive for at least another decade. Britain and France, who had won the war, were exhausted, but both had lost many foreign markets during the war. And the United States had captured these foreign markets during that time. Indeed, the United States had profited economically from World War I. And yes, indeed, there was great prosperity. The American cities were growing rapidly, while at the same time mechanization of farms enabled the countryside to produce more foodstuffs than ever before. The United States had attained the upper hand and was now the leading commercial enterprise in the entire world. Thus, the background to the Roaring Twenties has been set in an atmosphere of easy money, permanent prosperity, and growth. This vision of growth and prosperity would become the text of many speeches by businessmen as well as government officials from 1921 to 1929. They could with reason observe that theirs was the greatest growth period in American history, a time of qualitative and quantitative change. Optimism seemed justified. So the bull market, or buyer's market as it is sometimes called, which began in 1921, did not appear unreasonable to those who participated in it. Flaws were seen by a few, but these were only minor points when set alongside the great gains of this unusual era. When asked to list the most important discoveries of the 1920s, businessmen mentioned cellophane, celluloid, antifreeze, oleomargarine, bakelite, and rayon. All of them made their impression, but none was vital to the economy of the 1920s. On the political scene, three Republican administrations worked toward lower tax rates, a budgetary surplus so as to pay off the national debt, and a favorable balance of trade. President Harding and Coolidge were content to allow matters of fiscal policy to be decided by Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon who was called the greatest Treasury Secretary since Alexander Hamilton. Mellon was one of the most influential members of the government. It was later said of him that three presidents served under him. In private life, he was the head of the powerful Pittsburgh clan of Mellons, influential in aluminum, banking, petroleum, and other businesses.
He was one of the richest men in the world, and it might be pointed out that during the 1930s, after leaving his job as Secretary of the Treasury, he had built at his own expense the National Art Gallery in Washington, D.C. Not only did he have it built, but many of the paintings now hanging in the National Art Gallery were given by him to the people of the United States for future enjoyment. Since he was such a tycoon, he could scarcely be expected to do anything that business during the 1920s would oppose. As Secretary of the Treasury, he cut expenditures for almost every department of government. He showed a surplus of money each year and paid off a substantial portion of the national debt. He provided an atmosphere of stability which Wall Street greatly appreciated. Andrew Mellon was responsible for pushing tax reductions through Congress. Everyone seemed to benefit. And as one member of the United States Senate, Senator George Norris of Nebraska commented, under the terms of Mr. Mellon's tax bill, Mr. Mellon himself gets a large personal reduction. So large, in fact, that it totals more than all the taxpayers of the state of Nebraska will get. Yes, indeed, Andrew Mellon became the fairy godfather of the bull market. By 1925, all the peace treaties were signed and ratified. The Washington Naval Disarmament Conference had resulted in a series of agreements in which most major nations accepted partial disarmament. The Dawes Plan of 1924 seemed to set the reparation payments that Germany had to pay on a realistic basis. Americans loaned Germany sufficient funds to make the first payments, and from then on, this served as the major financial bulwark for Germany. In 1925, Germany and other European nations signed the Locarno Pacts, which signified acceptance of the western boundaries drawn after the Great War. Germany also entered the League of Nations, and Russia seemed incapable of exporting her revolution to the rest of Europe. Insofar as the international scene was concerned, everything seemed about ready to enter into a new stage of history. America felt that she could return to her pre-war isolationism and felt that she could concentrate her attention on the domestic scene. On the financial scene, J.P. Morgan and Company was still the bulwark of prestige and power on Wall Street, while Kuhn Laub and Company retained its perennial second-place position. There was a demand during the 1920s for new securities, so much so that stocks were traded at premiums shortly after being publicly offered. There was always a rush to get in on the ground floor of any good stock, and any stock was good. There wasn't a bear in sight during most of the 1920s. A bear? Yes. A bear is one who has a pessimistic view of the stock market and the economy and expects prices to fall. He is, then, the opposite of a bull. Bears will sell securities, expecting to profit from the fall of the price of the stocks. To make a profit from the falling prices of stock, a bear will usually sell short. Sell short? What do you mean by that? A person who is a bear will borrow shares of stock from a person who owns the stock with the promise to return the stock he has borrowed in a certain allotted time. He now sells those stocks he has borrowed, hoping that the market will drop. Then, 
When the market value of the stock has dropped to what the bear considers a sufficient point, he will buy back all the stock he sold at a lower price and return it to the owner. In the meantime, the bear has made a nice, neat profit. For instance, a bear may decide that United States Steel, which we will say is selling at $100 per share, is due for a decline. The bear borrows, say, 1,000 shares of stock. The man from whom he borrows the stock lends it to him for a fee, of course. The bear now takes the stock and sells it at $100 per share on the market. $100 per share times 1,000 shares equals $100,000. Now let us assume that the stock on U.S. Steel drops to $60 per share. The bear now buys up 1,000 shares at $60,000 returns the stock to the broker, and he has made himself a neat $40,000 over a period of, say, one week. But now in 1926, even the most dour bear was converted into becoming a bull. The fundamental economic law of supply and demand was most apparent on Wall Street. When the demand for a security exceeds its supply, the price rises. And by the mid-twenties, there was a great demand for securities in America. The demand far outstripped the supply of stock. So new companies were formed with little or no backing. The stocks and bonds, regardless of how worthless or phony, were grabbed up by eager speculators even before they were announced. Most stocks sold at a premium minutes after being subscribed for by those lucky insiders who were able to buy the stock at the first offering price. It is no wonder then that investment bankers competed with one another for the favors of businessmen who might want to float a new stock issue or borrow money through bond flotations. Money was cheap, stocks and bonds were dear. It was the golden age for those who had the intelligence, imagination and daring to take advantage of the situation, to make full use of the law of supply and demand. By 1927, there was a chaotic jumble of companies, flotations, amalgamations, and manipulations, and almost all speculators of the 1920s used the principle of leverage. To put it simply, leverage involves the ratio of equity that you own in a stock as compared to the debt you owe on the stock. If a person owned a security outright, he was not using leverage. Should he borrow money for the purchase of stock, he was utilizing leverage. Hence, an individual who resorts to broker's loans or margin money, somebody else's money, to purchase stock was using leverage. Without the ability to borrow and a market in which to sell debt obligations, few corporations could survive in the American environment. It is a vital aspect of our economy. As speculation intensified and more and more people purchased stocks on margins so as to gain leverage, the demand for brokers' loans rose rapidly. This led to an increase in the money rate and the high rates of interest attracted money from investment trusts and banks across the nation. The money was loaned to speculators who used the money to purchase shares of stocks in the same investment trust that had loaned him the money originally. This created a strange situation. Stocks purchased in American companies were being made with money loaned by American companies themselves. As the demand increased, 
the price of the stock went up, as did the rate on money. This meant the company could show higher earnings, which in turn led still to greater demands for the stock, higher rates, and so on. It resembled a dog chasing its own tail. Paper values rose without substance, and very few persons thought to question the boom in which all made money. Money was to be made with little or no real risk. It seems as if all you had to do was to go to your broker and buy stock on margin and in a week sell that stock when prices went up and you had made a bundle. Although money can be made by what seems little risk, by purchasing it on margin, it can also be disastrous. For instance, say you purchase $100 worth of stock on 90% margin, putting the stock up for collateral. This means that you would have to pay out of your own pocket for the stock $10. The other $90 would be put up by a broker or a bank that has loaned you the money. You agree that if the stock, which is worth $100, drops below $90, you will make up the difference. You will make up the margin of difference. That is to say, let us assume that the value of your stock drops to $80. The bank has the option to call you to come up with $10 because that is the margin of difference between their $90 loan and the $80 value of your stock. Now, if the bottom fell out of the market and you could not get rid of your stock, you would be obligated to pay the difference of margin on the stock. Even if it meant selling your home, it would be utterly disastrous. But that was impossible. As economist Irving Fisher proclaimed, the economy has reached a permanent high plateau. So the American people had stumbled onto the permanent plateau of prosperity. The bulls were everywhere. They optimistically brought with them a profitable future. And this trend seemed to lift the prices even to a higher plateau. This was the year when the kellogg briand Peace Pact outlawed war as a means of arbitration. Henry Ford introduced his Model A. Talking motion pictures started with the movie The Jazz Singer. Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs this year, and Charles A. Lindbergh flew by himself from New York to Paris in May. The market advanced and saw volume expand almost 128 million shares over the 1926 figures. By 1928, the enormous confidence in the Coolidge prosperity had lifted the price of stock to what many hard-headed financiers considered alarming levels. But if they were alarmed by February, they must have been horrified by March, because the market was still going up. Stories of fortunes made overnight were on everyone's lips. Brokers' branch offices were jammed with crowds of men and women watching the shining transparency on which the moving message of the ticker tape was written. It made no difference whether or not you held as much as a single share of stock. There was a thrill in seeing the news of that upward trend. By 1929, it seems as if the stocks were going out of sight. Time and time again, economists and forecasters had cried, Wolf, wolf! And time and time again, the Federal Reserve Board expressed fear in the inflation. Was business in danger? Nonsense. Factories were running at full blast, and the statistical index registered first-class industrial health. Well, what about overproduction? Nothing to worry about. Business concerns were holding their own, and commodities were selling as usual. 
Then, as always, boom turns to bust. On October 24, 1929, the market, which had been having an up-and-down fluctuation, started a downward trend. On that momentous Thursday, stocks opened moderately steady in price, but the volume was enormous. Kennecott appeared on the tape in a block of 20,000 shares. General Motors, 25,000 shares. The pressure of selling orders was becoming disconcertingly heavy, and as one sells, the market looks for buyers. When there are no buyers, the sellers of the stock lower their prices in hopes of finding a buyer. Down, down, down with the prices. Before the first hour of trading was over, the ticker was running behind. In brokers' offices all over the country, tape watchers looked at one another in astonishment. Where on earth was the torrent of selling orders coming from? Fear was not long in coming. As the price structure crumbled, there was a sudden stampede to get out from under. By 11 a.m., traders on the floor of the stock exchange were in a wild scramble to sell at market value. Long before the ticker tape could tell what was happening, word had gone out by telephone and telegraph that the bottom was dropping out of things and the selling orders doubled in volume. Stocks were not dropping one point at a time, but were dropping at five to ten points at one time. United States Steel opened at 205 and before long had crashed to 193. GE opened at 315 and had already dropped to 283. As a man walked into his broker's branch office across the nation to see how his stock was doing during his lunch hour that day, he would look at the big board. As he looked at the big board, the figures took his breath away. Then he became aware in a moment that the figure was unreliable. As he read the figures that were changing so fast, he watched Westinghouse slide from 189 to 177. He would read the figures aloud in a mumbling, expressionless monotone as his face grew pale. Men now occupied every seat on the floor and stood packed in the rear of the room. A crowd rushed to the visitor's gallery overlooking the exchange floor. There the spectators witnessed bedlam. Some onlookers wept. Others screamed while brokers themselves were in tears and hoarse from shouting. The gallery was closed at 11 a.m. to keep the hysterical from starting a riot. By that time, over $9 billion in paper values had been wiped out. In past panics, J.P. Morgan had taken charge. His reputation and skill had always stilled the fears. But Morgan was dead now, and his son, who was running the company, was in Europe. The manager of the house of Morgan was Thomas Lamont. Lamont and four other leading bankers now met in the Morgan office at 23 Wall Street. These men were Albert Wiggins, in charge of the Chase National Bank, William Potter of the Guaranteed Trust, Seward Proser of the Bankers Trust, and George F. Baker of the First National Bank. These men controlled over $6 billion of assets. They met in Morgan's office for the purpose of stopping this market decline. For if they didn't stop this decline, their own institutions might well go under. Each institution put up about $40 million to shore up the market. The object of these men was to make such purchases as was necessary to keep trading on an orderly basis. They would try to study the prices of the leading securities, which served as bellwethers for the list as a whole. 
Bellwether stocks are stocks whose activities are considered especially meaningful to the Wall Street community. It was a dangerous plan, for with hysteria spreading, there was no telling what sort of a debacle might be impending. As the bankers separated, Mr. Lamont faced a gathering of reporters in Morgan's office. His face was grave, but his words were soothing. His first sentence was one of the most remarkable understatements of the time. He said, There has been a little distress selling on the stock exchange, and we have held a meeting of the heads of several financial institutions to discuss the situation. Further, he asserted to reporters that the market was fluctuating because of technical conditions rather than from any fundamental cause. At about 1.30 p.m., Richard Whitney, who was the vice president of the New York Stock Exchange, went onto the floor to make a few purchases. Everyone knew that he was allied with the House of Morgan, and so he was watched by other floor traders. He went to the post where United States Steel was selling and put in his bid for 10,000 shares. His bid price was $205 per share. That was just $2,050,000 he had spent. Next, he went to other Bellwether stock areas and purchased 10,000 shares in each of 15 different stocks. In the space of a few minutes, Mr. Whitney purchased in the neighborhood of $30 million worth of stock. Purchases of this magnitude were not made by just anybody. Who was doing all the buying? It was clear that Whitney was representing some pool, and if the big boys upstairs felt there was nothing to worry about, why should the little speculator? All of a sudden, everyone was buying again. Chairs rose thunderously from the floor, and the word quickly spread to the streets. The market was turning around, and prices were heading upward and most stocks that had been at a 10-point loss at noon were now in the gain column. At 7.08 p.m., four hours and eight minutes after the exchange had closed, the ticker tapes throughout the country finally stopped. The last transaction had been recorded. Over 12 million shares had changed hands. The country had had a taste of bitter panic, and Black Thursday, which was over now, didn't appear to be too disastrous. The banker's pool had prevented, for the moment, an utter collapse. Stocks rose on Friday and Saturday morning, and the brief panic seemed over. Most everyone attempted to bury and forget Black Thursday. Monday, October 28th, toward the middle of the day, prices began to slip again, and the route was underway once more. The losses were terrific. United States Steel dropped 17 points, while General Electric fell 47 points. It now became obvious that the banker's pool, which had saved the market Thursday, was making a retreat. They had saved the market to unload what they didn't want, and now that they seemed to be clear, let the market fall. By late Monday afternoon, the ticker tape began to drop behind. Lights in the broker's offices and banks burned throughout the night until dawn. Telegraph companies distributed thousands of margin calls and requests for more collateral to back up loans that people had made in purchasing their stocks on margin. But the worst was yet to come. It came the next day, Tuesday, October 29th. The big gong had scarcely sounded across the great hall of the exchange at 10 a.m. when storms of selling orders hit the market. There was very little confidence in evidence by anyone. The volume for the first half hour was over 3 million shares. 
Huge blocks of stock were thrown on the market for whatever they would bring. Sell, sell at any price. The laboring ticker saw a fearful recession of prices take place. People who had counted themselves millionaires a week earlier now watched helplessly as they became beggars and paupers. No one was thinking of buying. The only orders heard were, sell, sell. The scene on the floor was chaotic. Machinery was behind in orders. Communication systems were jammed. The dumping continued on the market, and the complete demoralization of the market took place. Stockbrokers and their staffs were completely exhausted. It was a critical day for banks, too. Many of the corporations, which had loaned money to brokers through the banks in order to get high interest rates, were now clamoring to have those loans called in. Banks could either assume the loans themselves and run the risk of going under, or they could call the money in from the brokers. Many of the bankers assumed the loans and did not add a money panic to the stock panic. 16,410,000 shares were traded in that day which saw the age of the golden glow burn out. A day that saw economic prosperity turn to drought. A day that saw little investors, the everyday man on the street, wiped out, lock, stock, and barrel. The big bull market was dead. Billions of dollars worth of profit and paper profits disappeared. The grocer, the window cleaner, the seamstress, all had lost their investments. Every town in the country saw families of affluence drop into debt. Investors who had dreamed of retiring to live on their fortunes now found themselves on Poverty Road. An era had ended. Well, what went wrong? Everything was so rosy. Why should the market fail? Economists tell us there are many reasons. One, overproduction and underconsumption of capital goods. Two, artificial commodity prices. Three, inflation. Four, international financial derangement. Five, a European depression. Six, speculation. And finally, perhaps, the most important and profound reason was the psychological reaction called fear. Prosperity was more than an economic condition. It was a state of mind. The bull market had been more than a climax of a business cycle. It had been the climax of a cycle of mass thinking and mass emotion for the American people. There was the idea of get rich quick, get something for nothing. There was hardly a man or woman in the United States whose attitude toward life was not affected in some degree and whose life was not changed by the sudden and brutal shattering of their hopes and dreams. With the bull market and prosperity gone, Americans soon found themselves living in an altered world. It was a world which called for new adjustments, new ideas, new habits, new thoughts, and a new order of values. The psychological climate in the United States changed, and the ever-shifting currents of American life turned to new channels to meet the challenge of the Great Depression.